The next one in the Book Collector series of podcasts is John Dreyfus's article on John Baskerville's books. This was published in our issue for summer 1959. Curious book collectors with outstretched hands are ready to pay what is asked for these so nitied works. Such was a Swedish traveller's comment on the keen demand for Baskerville's books in May 1760. A new bibliography by Dr. Philip Gaskell may well restore the status quo, for nothing gives a greater stimulus to book collecting and prices than a bigger and better bibliography. A defection on my part has made this new bibliography less bulky than Strauss and Dent's earlier memoir. Dr. Gaskell explains in his foreword why I never managed to join forces with him in revising the biography while he was compiling the new bibliography. The truth of the matter is that to write a memoir of John Baskerville requires the talents of a man of letters, and I am a man of type. When that well-lettered typographer, Sir Francis Menel, gave the Percy Smith Memorial Lecture in 1952 on the subject of John Baskerville, printer and designer, he managed to bring his character to life. But the paucity of facts about Baskerville's early life led him to complain, with some reason, that the biographers get us nowhere. Sir Francis set about the early authorities with a touch of not-on-your-lifemanship. In particular, he doubted whether Baskerville started life as a footman, a tale based on a remark written by the Reverend Mark Noble long after Baskerville's death. If Sir Francis is correct in calling Noble a thoroughgoing gossip with an eager ear for a romantic story, so too was the Swedish traveller from whose diary I have quoted. In Bengt Ferner's Reza in Europa, 1758-1762, there is an account of a visit which he made to Baskerville's house in Birmingham on the 12th of May, 1760, when Baskerville won the heart of his Swedish visitors, quote, with his polite behaviour, which was more to admire, as he had made his way from livery servant to considerable prosperity. People have a passion for the humble beginnings sort of story, observed Sir Francis. I am one of those people. But as a biographer Monquet, I have never satisfactorily unravelled what exactly these writers meant by a footman or livery servant. Strauss contented himself by quoting an early biographer, whom he did not identify, according to whom the circumstances of a more or less glowing livery and padded calves are not inherent in the idea of a footman, and we are to regard Baskerville simply as an indoor servant. We may never learn just how humble Baskerville's beginnings really were, but we know that he was born in Worcestershire in 1706, and that he set himself up as a writing master in Birmingham while in his middle twenties. We have still the evidence of his handsome slate, preserved at the reference library in Birmingham, upon which he described himself as a writing master who could cut gravestones in any of the hands. The Roman and Italic letters upon that stone are very similar in style to those which Baskerville later cut in types. Any doubt caused by the spelling of his name on that slate as John Baskerville without an E is allayed by its appearance in precisely that form on the pages of the Birmingham Rate Books for 1734 and 1735. It was not, however, as a writing master or stonecutter that Baskerville rose to considerable prosperity, 
He made his fortune out of the manufacture of Japan ware and only turned his attention to printing in his middle age. Once again, Bengt Firmer's diary is informative, both as to the outward and visible signs of his wealth and the means by which he acquired it. I quote, In the morning, 12th of May, 1760, we went to see Mr. Baskerville's house and beautiful place, situated on a hill outside the city, from which one has a view all over the town and the neighbourhood. He is living here as a prince. He received us very politely and demonstrated himself, his factory for lacquered tea tables or trays, gift plates, candlesticks, baskets, etc., on which the lacquer is very delicate, and the drawing of flowers and birds very well executed. His wife, who formerly has had Eves as a husband, was his dessinateur for the finer work. A tea tray with the length of two feet and the width of three quarters of the best design costs two guineas, while another large one, where not the same accuracy has been observed, sold at one and a half. Small, round gift plates sold at six shillings apiece and the other things proportionately. How the tables and hand baskets were formed from the sheet iron plates and how the lacquer was first applied, Baskerville shunned from showing, politely saying that it was his livelihood. He showed us his type foundry. The machine in which the types are cast is quite clever and demands great accuracy. When all is in order, a man is said to cast 700 letters an hour, but ordinarily only four to 500 were cast. He showed us also his printing office, where Addison's works are now in hand. It was so nitid that I never before have seen anything like it. Every sheet of paper was so polished after it had passed between two well-polished steel rollers. The type characters were not at all pressed into the paper, and the ink was beautiful and bright. Virgil in quarto was also printed in the same way. Baskerville also showed us a great number of pieces which hung in his room and which his wife had drawn and which were excellent. Here we have a first-hand account of John Baskerville, the successful Japaner who set up what we would call today a private press. His printing richly deserves a full-dress bibliography, for it is by printing and not Japaning that his reputation has grown. Until the end of the 19th century, the two English typographers who had the greatest influence at home and abroad were John Baskerville and William Morris. Although the style of that box had nothing in common, many similarities can be noted in their careers. Both men had passed the age of 50 before they printed a book set in types of their own design. Both came to the craft of printing as amateurs, but with previous experience of calligraphy and of design in the decorative arts. Both men were wealthy, before they began to indulge their taste for typography. They needed their wealth, for they spent years in experimenting and paid large sums for the finest ink and the purest papers to show up their types to best advantage. Their books are coveted and collected because they are fine specimens of craftsmanship and because they are novel in design. To study these books properly, we need just such a bibliography as Dr. Gaskell has compiled. He has set out first to make it easy to identify all Baskerville's books, pamphlets and broadsides, and secondly, to give some information about how they were printed. In his introduction, 
and in the five pages which summarise his conclusions, Dr Gaskell has made important additions to our knowledge of Baskerville's methods and technique. The bibliography is divided into two parts. Part 1 is devoted to specimens, proposals and other ephemeras. Part 2 describes his books. The principal additions to previous accounts of Baskerville's printing are to be found in Part 1. Nine of the twelve collotype plates show items from Part 1 which have never before been reproduced in a book, and five of these plates show items which are probably unique and were not recorded in Strauss and Dent. There is also a splendid facsimile of Sarah Baskerville's type specimen of 1777. The bibliographical descriptions include notes on the papers and types used, as well as full details of format, cancels and errors. Entries for the books, which are most complicated bibliographically, each open with a lucid introduction. And in this way, Dr. Gaskill painlessly imparts many new facts on the printing of the Virgil of 1757, the Octavo prayer books of 1760-62, to and the Orlando Furioso, 1773, actually 1771. A concordance with Strauss and Dent provides a helpful line of continuity back to the earlier authorities. Ralph Strauss kept an interleaved copy of his own book which he grangerized and annotated heavily. It became one of the many sources used by Dr. Gaskill. I have in my own library the hand list of Baskerville's books, which was printed in 1904 at the University Press, Cambridge as the first and only publication of the Baskerville Club. My copy belonged to Ralph Strauss, who had been given it on the 22nd of September 1905 by A.T. Bartholomew, and it is also heavily annotated by Strauss. In one respect, the earlier hand list and the bibliography in Strauss and Dent covered more ground than Dr. Gaskell's work, for they attempted to list books printed in Baskerville's types after his death in 1775. It no longer seems rewarding to attempt such a roster because we now know the full story of the fate of the punches from which his types were made. I have published elsewhere an account of how the punches were bought in 1777 from Baskerville's widow by Caron de Beaumarchais, who transported them first to Cale, where he used them for his editions of Voltaire, and then to Paris, where Citoyen... Beaumarchais set up a type foundry which supplied types for the Gazette Nationale and a great many other French printing houses. After Beaumarchais's death, the punches passed through the hands of Pierre Didot, l'aîné, but they disappeared from the market until 1893, when the Fonderie Bertrand brought them to make types which they sold incognito. They were recognized in 1917 by the American typographer Bruce Rogers, who was then working in England as advisor to the University Press at Cambridge. Finally, through the generosity of Charles Peignot, whose foundry in Paris had bought the punches from Bertrand in 1936, the surviving punches were presented to Cambridge University in 1953. During Baskerville's lifetime, the printing trade in England decried his new types and ridiculed his shiny paper. The combination was said to be dazzling to the eye. Collectors were not of the same opinion. On the strength of the prospectus for his first book, a throng of subscribers came forward. 
When we notice how many of Baskerville's books have survived in contemporary foreign bindings, we may surmise that he also found many admirers abroad. Besides book collectors, their number included two foreign printers whose names appear in the subscribers list to the Virgil of 1757. Johannes N. Shede of Harlem and Benjamin Franklin of Philadelphia, he ordered six copies. Didot in France, Bodoni in Italy and Ibarra in Spain all admired and emulated his work. Despite this succès d'estime, Baskerville failed to make a commercial success of his typographical adventure and his types soon fell into neglect, along with the flagrant imitations which Isaac Moore, a rival typefinder, brought out soon after the stir caused by the initial success of Baskerville's books. Revival of interest in Baskerville's types date from 1924, when they were recut by the Monotype Corporation as part of a program of typographical revivals suggested by Stanley Morrison. The revival turned out to be a runaway success at home and abroad. Such wide acclaim led other makers of type-composing machines, as well as some type foundries, to include versions of the 18th century writing master's design in their own plans for typographical development. Since the end of the war, the design has been adapted for three leading systems of photocomposition, and as recently as January this year, an article in an American trade journal has described at some length the, and I quote, growing trend to revival of Baskerville printing types. In matters of taste, it is dangerous to attempt explanations. There is no denying that Baskerville's types possess great individual beauty and combine harmoniously into words. But it should not be forgotten that these types were made as a labour of love, and it may not be altogether fanciful to suggest that some of the enthusiasm which went into their making rubs off on the reader who looks at Baskerville's books. As texts, they have many imperfections, and as pieces of printing, they are not without their flaws. As designs, the letters are not particularly original. They owe a great deal to the English writing masters of the early 18th century, notably George Shelley. But Baskerville was the first to introduce this style into type design. Moreover, he disposed his types on the page with such palladian elegance and spaciousness that the total effect far exceeds the quality of any single ingredient. Baskerville has some claim to be the first to introduce neoclassicism in English printing. After two centuries, his books and types are admired and imitated throughout the world. Dr. Gaskell's scholarly book, with its useful plates, provides much new and welcome information about John Baskerville's so knitted books. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit www.thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. You can receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive, 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports, 
and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit www.thebookcollector.co.uk today.